Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, hey. It's a phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Today we have Judy Thurston. She is the author of the best-selling book, Beautiful Tragedy. Her life changed when her son Jacob died of a drug overdose at just 18. And she has turned her pain into her purpose by sharing the give principle to the world. Judy, welcome. Yeah, I didn't even know where to start because I feel like your book is super heavy and totally brought me to tears. I'm not going to lie. Wow. Yeah. And you know, it's always, it's so interesting hearing from someone that doesn't know me, doesn't know the family, that's like totally objective, you know, to see how it would translate for them. One thing that really I even asked, you know, my Facebook group about was, do you believe in signs? That was one thing that I took from it. And I got such a reaction to that. And I get them all the time. Like it's so constant that I don't even share everything because people are just going to be like, okay, you're just crazy. But like, I'll be at the gym, I'll be working out and I'll just ask him for a sign and I'll look over and I'll have a a heart sweat puddle next to me. I I do think that you have to believe that in order to see them, but I've been more attuned to it since I've read your book. Right. I mean, how about the whole day of picking out his casket (laughs) yeah that was one of the things that I definitely remembered so yeah we got to kind of like for the audience like start from the beginning but the fact that you ended up picking a casket that you know had his name in the title of the basket and you know, that it was a Jewish star. That was really interesting. I know. know. And the fact that my husband and I looked at each other, it was the first one we saw and we both just intuitively knew like, we're not going to look at any other ones. This is the one. Yeah. That, (laughs) that was a gripping part of the story for sure. And the other part of the story was the title of the book. I mean, that's where I cried. Yeah. I also like wanted to start off by saying, I am so sorry for your loss. I mean, that's what I was going to start with is that, I mean, one thing that you said too, is like, you will always be his mom. That really hit me hard. You know, I mean, it truly is a beautiful tragedy, right? Like as hard and as horrific as the circumstances, there's so many beautiful things that have birthed through, through his death. I want to start from the beginning, like of your story. I mean, there were, there was a line in there where you mentioned that you have also suffered trauma and turned to men and other things in your life. I want to know your story too. I'm just kind of all over the place because I, I was born in the Philippines. I grew up in a family of politicians And so I learned from an early age that you put your pretty face out, you wave at the camera, you smile, and that's about it. You don't say anything that's open or that might reveal or expose the family. And, you know, during this time, I'm dealing with being sexually abused, family members, I am dealing with eating disorders. I am dealing with just complete disassociation. That was just how I protected myself. And so my whole life, I just lived in this kind of my own bubble of feeling very isolated, feeling very alone. And when we moved to the States, you know, that's when I discovered men and, you know, with people who are sexually abused, they're going to turn to one or two ways, right? Either total promiscuity, or they will just shelter and isolate and just become a kind of a hermit. And so I went the other way, I was a party girl, and it was like, anything goes. And I didn't really have any boundaries, because I never learned what that was. 
And so through my teens, just kind of crazy party girl and very angry. And so even when you read my book, I talk a lot about grief and grief is energy. And when it doesn't have a place to go, it will either implode or explode. And so I feel like my teen years, there was all this grief that I couldn't identify, articulate, didn't know how to process. I had zero coping skills. And so it was just complete, just excess of alcohol, drugs, men, you name it. And so then I fell in love with dancing. I was senior in high school and it was like this light bulb went on and said, that's what I want to do. I want to be a dancer, like a real professional dancer. And this is the birth of, you know, MTV and everybody wanted to be a video vixen. And I was like, yes, that's what I want to be when I grow up. And I remember my dad, you know, getting college applications and touring different campuses. And he wanted me to take over the family business, which at that point was import exporting and textiles and we were going to, um, I was going to go to fit them. And I said, I don't want to do that. I want to be a dancer. And he said, well, if you want to be a dancer, then you'll, you'll have to support yourself. We're not going to support you. You're going to have to figure it out. So at 18, I moved to Hollywood. I got a scholarship at a dance academy. I worked three jobs. I mean, just working, working, working through school. And very shortly after I did pretty well in the dance world. And by the time I was 19, I was in my first tour and I was backup dancing for artists and I was on MTV, you know, my dream come true. And I was dating a guy who was really popular and really successful. I think at the time he might've been dancing for Janet Jackson. And so on the outside, there was all this success and all this, oh my gosh, you know, she has it going on. And, but in the inside, there was so much insecurity. I mean, I remember being on the set for the music video. Do you remember Debbie Gibson? Debbie Gibson, uh, she was I an artist. <laughs> I was one of, in one of her videos. And I remember just being on the set, feeling so insecure, so ugly, so fat, so fill in the blank. And so I think here was my dream to be on MTV. And I finally get there and I couldn't even enjoy it because the whole time I am just imploding, right? And I have just all this self-esteem issues. And, and that happened throughout my career as a dancer. I would make it all the way to the end. And then I would self-sabotage because of just my own trauma and issues and not feeling like I was enough or feeling like I was worthy of it. And then about the age of 21, and I realized, I said, man, if this is the height of success, there's got to be more. This is just empty. And that's when I started searching spiritually. I said, there's got to be more to life than this success. If this is the pinnacle of success, then this is very empty, you know? And so I started searching and I was dancing and teaching dance at a dance studio and some women came and took my dance class and they were inviting me to Bible study and, you know, inviting me to church. And I thought, oh, I remember taking the invitation because I said, you know, one day when I'm old, when I'm like 30, <laughs> I'll probably be ready to go to church or do something like that. So I would keep the invitations, but I would never go because, you know, I'm like young and having fun. And that was the last place I thought I'd want to be is church. But they kept inviting me and they were super sweet and super kind. And being in Hollywood, it was such a contrast to what I was around, right? The superficial, like just party scene. And I remember this woman in particular, BJ, she was just so grounded and just so present and just so at peace. And she just felt so authentic and real. And I just wanted to have what she had. And so she was the one that first introduced me to, you know, to God, to church, to Christianity. At that point, I was pretty much agnostic. Like I believe there was something in the universe, but I didn't really pinpoint, couldn't really pinpoint what it was. So going through, you know, different Bible studies and just being around her, it really helped expose me to this whole new world of faith that I never had before. And, you know, me, I'm kind of an all or nothing person. So I went face first, like into the faith world and I was risen up in leadership right away. And I actually started working for the church full time and I was in full time ministry. And so I really spent a lot of the next probably seven, eight years doing that. And that's where I met my husband. And 
started a family and raised their kids in the church. And yeah, so to answer your question, you know, there was a lot of trauma in my life, obviously. And I feel like little by little, so many things were being healed through faith, through finding grief recovery. Grief recovery is again, another tool that I was exposed to about 15 years ago. A lot of my girlfriends started becoming certified grief specialists. And I thought, oh, that's great for you, but I don't really have any reason to do that because I don't really have any grief in my life, or so I thought. (laughs) But because I was exposed to that, sometimes you get the cure before you get the ailment, right? And so who knew 15 years later, 20 years later, that I would be experiencing the worst and greatest grief of my life, which is losing my son. And I had already these tools in my toolbox of how to process this grief. Does it make it any easier? And does it mean that, oh, I did it perfectly, but at least there were tools that I could use that I can hang on to, to get me through this challenging tragedy that I experienced. Yeah. And my husband and I, you know, we experienced a lot of highs, a lot of lows, and we love to live life to the full. And during the height of the real estate market back in 2007, flipping homes and got into real estate and did really, really well and had a lot of fun and had million dollar homes and everything. And then as we all know, the crash of that (laughs) turn, then we lost everything. I mean, everything. And that's when our family moved to Austin, Texas. And so prior to that, when we were all in LA, my son was in a band. My daughter had a scholarship for a dance academy as well. She was dancing with the Joffrey Ballet at nine years old. My son was playing, you know, the whiskey, the Roxy, all the famous places at nine, 10 years old. And then when we lost everything financially, we had to do something. And so we moved to Austin, Texas and talk about signs. So this is a crazy story. So we knew we needed to do something. We didn't really know what to do. And I remember asking God for signs. I said, you know, give us a sign. Where do you want us to be? And I had a dream one night. And in my dream, I took a pregnancy test. And God said, if it's positive, you're moving to Austin. And I woke up and I thought, well, that's wild. That's silly. And at that point I had three kids. We weren't planning on having any more children. I was already like almost 40 at that time. So I just thought, huh, that's a funny dream. And then a few days later I was in the bathroom and I happened to see a pregnancy test. And I said, just for giggles, I should just take a test and see what happens. So I did. And sure enough, there were two lines and it had been so long. I didn't even know what that meant. I had to Google it. I'm like, what is two, does this mean what I think it means? And sure enough, I woke my husband up and I said, oh my gosh. I said, what does this mean? And he says, well, I think that means we're moving to Austin and we're crazy people like that. We believe in signs. We follow, we gave up everything. We packed everything in a little pod, took our family cross country because of this crazy dream that I had. And we moved to Austin, Texas. And at that time, Jacob was probably 13 years old. And so, you know, it's a hard time to move as a teenager. So many changes and then life changes, friends. Because of the financial tragedy that we went through, we lost everything. So he couldn't do his band and my daughter couldn't do her dance. And so we had to really kind of start over. And that's what inspired him to do music because I remember he wanted Yeezys. That was kind of around the time everybody wanted Yeezys. And I said, well, if you want Yeezys, you're going to have to pay for them because otherwise we're going to Target. That's where we're getting your shoes. And he wanted Yeezys. And at 14, he taught himself how to make beats online, produce music. And he was making about $20,000 at 14 years old online making music. And so he's just super brilliant, genius kid, you know, but also on the flip side, we had no idea that he was being exposed to a lot of things online that we had no idea, right? He was investing in Bitcoin before Bitcoin was a thing. And we had no idea that he was, you know, buying drugs online with Bitcoin so that it couldn't be traced. He's sneaking out of the house, Ubering to get drugs in the middle of the night. My husband is a techie guy, he's an IT, and he created all these, I guess they call them firewalls to protect what everybody looked at on 
online. And my son created his own server and he figured out a workaround and he created his own apps. And I mean, he was just a genius kid. So, you know, the good thing is moving to Austin birthed his musicality and it helped him to really find that side of himself. And that's where Hella Sketchy was born. That's his stage name. And it was the cutest thing because when he was creating beats for people, people were buying them and like these hardcore rappers were buying his beats and not knowing who he was. They just knew him as hella sketchy. And so one day he finally said, okay, I'm going to do a big reveal on YouTube and kind of show who I am. And I remember he was upstairs doing that. I was down in the kitchen and I was watching him online do his reveal. And he's in his room. He's wearing his little pink sweatshirt. His little sister is photobombing in the background. And all these people are on there watching and they're like, wait a minute you're not black. <laughs> They're like, you're not in a studio. Like you're in your bedroom. How old are you? And so he became this prodigy. Actually, it was really interesting for these artists who had no idea who he was. And when they found out he was so young, that even endeared them more to him. And, you know, he was written up in all kinds of publications. And so he started out as a producer and then he rapped on one of his songs and my husband's producer director and my husband directed the music video and they put it online and it went viral and music studios and recording labels were seeking him and um, wanting to sign him and and he was signed with Atlantic Records at 17 years old yeah I mean he had such a huge career in front of him and so much potential and sadly not realized potential, right? He was one of those kids that he could do, you ask him to do anything and he did it well, kind of annoying, right? <laughs> he would just, you know, rather do other things and have fun. And, and my kids are so different because my daughter is a super hard worker and she works hard for every little thing that she gets. And it just kind of was annoying for her that her brother, you know, didn't really work hard for it, but it was just this natural talent that just flowed through him. But I love that he was so open and secure and, and confident with his talent. And I'm learning that from him now is how can I be more like that to be secure and to be wholehearted and authentic and unapologetic is really what he was is he didn't fit in a box even the kind of music that he did, he would mix genres together. And, you know, if the label say, oh, well, I think you should do it more like this. He really listened to his gut and he was like, no, I want to do this. So then he would just do what he wanted to do. And it worked for him. For, for I feel you like know, your book talent. though, was you being authentic to you and you incorporated your spirituality and your mindfulness practice and telling your story in a very open way. Thank you for saying that. And I really feel like that was Jacob's spirit really working through me because one of the greatest compliments that I've gotten for the book is, wow, I've never read anything like this. Like it's so different. And I remember even talking to my publisher and they, you know, wanted to change some things. And I really stuck to my guns and with my gut and said, you know, some things are non-negotiable. Like it has to be this way because I just feel it in my gut. And I don't care if it's not traditional. I don't care if it's not completely polished and grammar, you know, all the kind of the technical perfection stuff. I, I, I didn't care about that. I cared more about the spirit of the book because I wrote it in a way that a parent who's going through a loss or going through a struggle, you know, that can relate to my story can read it, but then turn around and give it to their 15 year old and their 15 year old is not going to be overwhelmed by it. It's a hard read, but it's easy to di digest. And the, the chapters are, you know, two to three pages and it's broken down really easy to read. So I, I appreciate you saying that because I do feel like that was Jacob's inspiration of me not trying to fit in a box, but just really going with my gut. So thank you. I've never breathed so much. <laughs> Seriously, like as I was reading the book, I was like, I need to breathe more. And I, every time you talked about breathing in there, I actually paused and did that. I love it. Yeah. 
So it was healing for me, like alongside reading it, like in my busy, chaotic mom of four life. And that's when we need meditation the most is when we're in the middle of chaos, right? It's not when it's all Zen and everything's perfect and candles and everything smells good. (laughs) We need it when we're in the midst of trauma, chaos, anxiety, depression, when we're in, in it. And I love that so many people have read the book and have shared exactly that, you know. I love that these are coping skills and tools that people can use that are practical, that actually work. Because it's one thing when it works for you and when it's something that I use for my own self and it's what's in my head, <laughs> but to put it in on paper and then have other people use it and follow it and to see it work for them, that's very humbling. I also really loved the quotes that you included along the way. And I found myself like, really thinking about them. Mm. I liked that. I thought I I liked the format of the book and I think I finished it in like a day and a half. So yeah, I couldn't put it down. Yeah. And that was also my prayer and my intention is that somebody could sit down and read it all in one sitting. And I have so many people that have shared that with me and that just makes me so happy. And I did have a mom today message me and she says, "I, I can only take the book and bites and little bits and pieces because she lost her son as well. And she said, it's just too triggering for me right now, but I'm glad that it's there because it makes me not feel alone. That's amazing. Yeah. There are some things that I do want to ask you. Like I watched his videos. I watched telesketchy videos because I was super curious after I read his story. And one thing that you mentioned was that you were upset that the music industry kind of glamorizes drug use. 100%. I want to talk about that. When did the drug use start? What led him to that though? Did you ever find that out? You know, gosh, that's the million dollar question, right? We were in in and out of therapy. We were in rehab, inpatient, outpatient. His longest stint in rehab was 70 days and family therapy and all the therapists scratching their head. They said he responds as someone who has experience deep trauma. But when we kind of look at the timeline of his life, there isn't really anything huge that we can pinpoint, right? So one of the things that I've learned even through my process is that it doesn't have to be big trauma to be trauma. Okay. It can be just moving. It can be, you know, leaving his band, leaving his friends. And so I'm looking at life through my lens of trauma. Oh, sexual abuse, rape, you know, being held hostage at gunpoint, you know, drug addiction or, you know, drug overdose and homelessness and all this crazy stuff that I went through. And so when I look at him, it's easy for me to be like, you haven't made here. (laughs) This is a cakewalk. Like, what's your trauma? You don't have, you don't have any trauma. And so I had to be very sensitive to listen to and not minimize Because just because it's not a big capital T trauma like mine doesn't mean that it wasn't traumatic for him. And so we never really got to the root of what was the trauma that led him to to the drug use. But a lot of his favorite artists, Little Peep, Juice World, Mac Miller, I mean, all these guys are dead now from overdose. And And in the book, you had two people come to the hospital that they themselves had survived overdoses. That was amazing. Oh yeah. And even when the executives from the record company came to the hospital to see Jacob, I remember walking them to Jacob's room and telling them, this is the reality of the drug culture that's being promoted in this music. So you guys are the gatekeepers here we have to do something different because this is what's happened. This is the real stuff, not the glamorized stuff in the music videos, but this is the real stuff. So even to be honest, even now, it's still very triggering for me to hear music because it's all about pills and lean. And if you're not familiar with what lean is, it's basically like liquid heroin, cough syrup. And I mean, just crazy stuff, you know, growing up, you know, all we had was weed and maybe Coke and (laughs) not that that was okay, but you had the luxury to experiment back then. Now it could just be one, one time and you're done. 
because all the crazy stuff that's out there, the fentanyl that's in everything. And so many kids are dying just from trying it the first time. And so, yeah, for sure. There's definitely a correlation between the music and what kids, the curiosity of, you know, these idols that they look up to. And, you know, with Jacob, even later on as his addiction got worse and his music, you could definitely see the progression in his music of the type of music that he was, he was writing and that he was putting out there. And it broke my heart because I, I know him and I know the older stuff that when he first started was so fun and just so catchy and so poppy and, and it really made people happy. And, and then it just got really dark and his music got really dark and, and when I would talk to him about it, he was like, mom, it's just the culture. I, you know, it's just what sells right now. And so don't worry about it. And of course, come to find out that that truly was what he was feeling and thinking. But when I confronted him about it, it was more like, oh, don't worry about it. That's just the culture of the music. And, you know, we have to do that. So I didn't know. I mean, you know what you know. Now that I'm on the other side of it, there's so much that I wish I would have known back then. And it's, it's hard not to live in that regret of the why, the why, why, why. And I share this in the book. It's, I try not to live in the why because the why will take you down really quickly. And there are no answers for the why. It's not going to bring Jacob back. I try to live in the what. It's like, okay, now what? What am I going to do with this information that I have? How can I empower and equip other families so that they don't have to go through what we've been through? And how can I equip kids and teenagers and young adults to not go down that path? And to know that actually this kid that I was talking to this week who reached out to me, who was struggling with some addiction, social anxiety and different things. And I just normalized it for him. And I said, you're supposed to feel anxious in new situations. I feel anxious in new situations. You know, I don't think we talk about that enough. And I think anxiety and we want to medicate it or we want to just take it away. But that's a real part of life. Anytime we're in a new situation, new school, new job, new relationship, there is that level of anxiety of that nervousness of, of something being new. And for me, I actually enjoy that because that excitement, that nervousness, that anxiety, whatever you want to call it, it shows me that I'm putting myself out there in a place that is stretching me and it's making me uncomfortable. And I even have a little gauge that the scarier it is, then that's probably what I need to do. So yeah, I'm a little crazy like that. I'm a little bit of an adrenaline junkie when it comes to, I really try to go after the things that scare me because I know that that's where growth happens and that's where the magic happens. But with the kids these days, they're not really being taught that. They're taught that, oh, if you're anxious, you're depressed here, let me give you a pill. I mean, that's what started for Jacob is when we moved to Austin, you know, it's really hard for him to make friends and acclimate to a new environment and everything else that comes with moving as a teenager. And when we saw his doctor, they just gave him antidepressants and those antidepressants made him suicidal. And then he quit them cold Turkey. And so he started self-medicating. And that's really where, from what I know is that's where it started is his drug use started just from trying to self-medicate because the medication that the doctors were giving him were not working. And because he was uber smart, he did a lot of research. And so he was researching all kinds of stuff and yeah. Did you ever tell him about the dark times you had been through? 100%. Yeah. And it actually kind of gave me street cred yeah. because we raised him in the church. You know, he always looked at us as kind of Pollyannas and you guys are, you know, funny story is, I don't mean this as a bragging or anything, but in his 18 years of life, he had never heard me say a curse word. Right. And so the day that he got his face tattoo, he got a face tattoo. I was wondering he, if that was real. I saw that in the picture. I was like, oh my God. Yeah. And he did it after he turned 18. So he came home with a face tattoo and it's, it, it's a, a heartbeat pulse. And I went up to him and I looked him straight in the face and I pointed at his face and I said, as long as this keeps you fucking alive, then fine. Look at yourself in the mirror. And I hope this reminds you to stay alive. Cause at that point, you know, he had had some stints 
in emergency room overdoses, different things. You know, we'd been battling in the last couple of years with his mental health. So that was the first time he had ever heard me say a bad word, right? I love that. Well, but the funny thing I had no idea is when he came into the house, he actually had his phone on him. I had no idea he was, he was taping me. He was recording me. And so in my head, I was like, oh, I said the F word. I'm like so badass, you know? And sadly, after he had passed and I was going through his phone and I saw that video and I replayed it, I basically just whispered it. Like in my head, it was like so big, like you F in this. And then in the video, it was just this little whisper of, you know, this better keep you effing alive. (laughs) And so, yeah, so many moments that I'm so grateful that we have recorded. And I think that's also a different dynamic as a grieving parent because I see videos of him every day. I mean, er, you know, he has all these fan pages and people are sharing pictures I've never seen before or videos I've never seen before. And so every day I wake up, it's like a punch in the gut, but it's also encouraging. It's bittersweet. Like, of course, I love seeing him and hearing him. And, but it's also a reminder that he's not here. 20 years ago, 50 years ago, if you lost a child, that was it. You just, you didn't see unless you had pictures, but you don't see the social media just in your face every day of picture after picture and music videos and music and songs. And so that's been a little bit challenging to navigate. I want to know how he responded to you telling him about your past. He was very grateful. I mean, him and I had a very special relationship because he knew that I got him. And I remember him sharing with me that he felt like I was the safest person that he could talk to. And I, you know, as a person who dealt with trauma, who was completely isolated from unavailable, unemotional relationships in my family, for me to have that with my son meant the world to me. I mean, I, I could have died and gone to heaven right there after he said that, because that's all I ever wanted was to have this connection on such a deep level with my son. And I feel like we had that and we would have just amazing talks and he could, you know, share anything with me. So I miss that so much. And it's really, really heartbreaking because it's, there's a special bond between mother and son that you just can't explain. Wow. Were you ever frustrated though? Oh gosh, 100%. 100%. I remember one after one therapy session and he said I was being controlled, you know, that I was too controlling because I was too strict and I didn't let him do anything. And so we got home and we were, I remember we were in the driveway and it was just him and I, and I said, how am I controlling? Show me, show me a list, like <laughs> kind of to his point. Right. And he, and he was laughing about it. He says, mom, he goes, I'm 16 and you don't even let me go to the grocery store by myself. And I was like, okay, you have a point. And so I started giving him a little bit more freedom. And I'm really grateful because that was when, you know, he really started exploring his music and he was playing out on tour and, you know, playing South by Southwest and going to open for, you know, bigger artists and letting him go with a bunch of his friends at 16, 17 years old. And, you know, a lot of people think, well, you're an idiot for letting him do that. But I'm grateful that I did because it gave him the opportunity to really live his life and experience life. I could have sheltered him. I could have grounded him. I could have just said, nope, you're staying in your room. I'm going to homeschool you. We're just going to go to church. That's going to be your life for now, which trust me, that was, that was very tempting. And there were times where that was me like, nope, I'm going to put you in a box and you're not going anywhere. But even if, you know, if you're a spiritual person, you know, the story of the prodigal son where the father just let him go and gave him his inheritance and let him go. And he squandered his, his life, but then he came back. Right. And the father opened his arms to him, um, welcomed him back and threw a party for him. And just his heart was, I want you home. I want to have a relationship with you. And so my husband and I, had that same kind of spirit and heart with Jacob. Like, yes, we're going to let you go into the world to experience the world as big as you want, but we are here for you. And we're not going to judge you for your choices. Do we 
agree? And do we support the things that you're doing that we don't agree with? No. And he knew that, but we still loved him through it. And he knew that. And so that I feel very grateful and proud that at the very end of his life, there was no doubt that he knew that we loved him and that we believed in him and that we were proud of him. And so I'm just really, really grateful because there's people that don't, didn't have the chance to really communicate those things to their children before their children pass. And so even though Jacob was found unresponsive and spent two weeks in the hospital um, in a coma, those two weeks for us was such a gift because we were able to communicate with him, even though he wasn't coherent and he wasn't responsive, I believe he could hear us. And really it was more for us than for him because grief is undelivered communication of an emotional matter. And so a lot of times people have grief because of all the things they wish they would have said, all the regrets of, oh, I wish, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda, I wish I would have said this, or I wish I didn't say that. And so during those two weeks in the hospital, we got to communicate all our love. We got to resolve if there was any unresolved, you know, issues and, you know, and all of us, even his sisters, you know, one by one, we were in his room talking and, and just sharing and communicating our hearts with him. And I feel like that was such a gift. It was a complete miracle that he even made it to the hospital, right? Right. I don't even write this in the book, but when Evelyn found him unresponsive, they did CPR on him for maybe 10 minutes. By the time the ambulance got there, they took over and did CPR on him. And California law is if they do cannot revive you after 30 minutes, you're considered dead on the spot. She said about the 30 minute mark, the paramedic looked at his watch and then gave eye contact to her and kind of was shaking his head. And she turned around and she just threw up a Hail Mary prayer because she didn't know what else to do. And as soon as she turned back around, they got a pulse. And so she- Oh my God, chills. That totally gives me chills. Oh my God. So many miracles that happened like that. And so there's no way that he should have even made it through that because at that point, let's say, and you know, it was crazy and nobody had a stopwatch to know exactly how much time, but let's just say it could have been anywhere between 30 minutes to 45 minutes of him being unresponsive. Well, oxygen to the brain, I mean, there's no way that you're going to survive that. And so the fact that he was able to be revived at that point was a miracle in itself. Also, I don't, I don't want to give away the whole book, but one, I didn't know about that California law. I mean, unless you've gone through it, how would you ever know that? But also I didn't know that you would be contacted by people wanting his organs. Did he sign the back of his license? No. And that was shady because, and again, you're there, you're paranoid, you're not thinking straight, but we got there and it's not even 24 hours, 48 hours. And we have people there already talking about wanting his organs. And we have the neurologist saying, oh, there's no hope. You know, you should really think about pulling the plug for lack of a better word. And then we had the heart surgeon who, the cardiologist who's like, hey, it's not over till it's over. And so we're going to do everything we can He's young, his organs are, are, are still strong, they're bouncing back. And so there was this fight even between doctors. I mean, I remember one day there was a screaming match between both doctors because one is like, we're done here. We need to pull the plug. And the other doctor's like, no, you're not God. You can't say that. And so it was drama <laughs> in the ER. And, and you're such I mean, a spiritual person too. So, oh my God. And that was the hard thing. And, and I am glad that my husband and I were on the same page far as, you know, it's not over until God says it's over. And we felt very surrendered and very at peace with the outcome because we really feel like you can't control that. What are you going to do? There's nothing we could do that was beyond our control at that point. So surrender. We just had to surrender. How have things been like with your guys' relationship after? You know, it's really still challenging. A lot of families don't make it through this kind of trauma. I don't know what the statistics are, but they're very high. 
statistics of parents not making it through like something like this tragedy. And again, I'm grateful that I had the tools and the knowledge to know that we grieve very differently and not to judge each other or not to expect just because I'm able to get up and go to work and write a book and do these things. That doesn't mean that I'm doing well. And just because maybe he's having a bad day and he can't get out of bed and he's struggling with just the grief that's so heavy that there's something wrong with that either, right? And so we both had to really respect our grieving process and not assign motives or judgments or, oh, you should be doing this like this because I'm doing this. (laughs) So because we had that understanding, I think we were able to navigate it well. Still not, obviously not easy because in my whole house, I mean, you know, you have my two daughters who are navigating grief very differently. You know, my daughter, Emma, who's 18, super close to Jacob, best friends, and still very angry and bitter and resentful and just hates the fact that her best friend isn't here. Her brother isn't here and she loves him dearly. And my younger daughter, who's 14, who's the classes always half full and everything's great and Jacob wouldn't want us to be sad. So let's get happy and let's move on. And we all went to therapy after um, Jacob passed in Sydney. You know, she only had maybe four sessions and the therapist is like, you know, you're doing really well and you're handling this very well. And I don't think you really need to come back to see me unless you want to. And so that's where she was at. You know, she's just processing in a very healthy way. And I did EMDR work. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but that is incredible work that basically takes trauma that's trapped in the body and helps to release, release it. And don't ask me what EMDR stands. It's an acronym for something, but you'll have to Google it because I can't remember off the top of my head right now, but whatever it is, it was amazing. And I had a great therapist that really helped walk through that, that with me, that journey and So yeah, I mean, being really proactive about our grief is super important because there's a lot of people that go through this and it can just take you out and right, rightly so. I mean, it's, it's heavy and and no judgment because I could totally see myself just spiraling down, staying in bed, eating ice cream every day, just watching Netflix. Like that could easily be my life and I would be fine. (laughs) But for me, every day was a choice to live. Every day was a choice to put purpose to my pain. Every day was a choice to, you know, really do something that would make Jacob proud. And, you know, some days I'm motivated and doing great. Other days I allow myself the time to grieve. And if I don't have it in me to get up and go, then I'm okay with giving myself permission to stay in bed, stay in my PJs all day, not take a shower not brush my teeth and eat ice cream for breakfast if I want. Like I'm okay with that, but it's not okay to stay there day in, day out because we all know that that pattern can easily just go downwards. Is it hard that he's in California? Jacob? Yeah. It is. We get to visit him pretty often. So I'm actually going to be there next, next week. And Um, That's hard to visit him at Forest Lawn and visit him in the ground, you know, like that's, that's very surreal and very hard and very emotional. And yeah, I still don't know how to process that, but I'm glad that he's close enough that we, we do get to visit him often. How do you do that? I talk to him. I lay with him. I cry. I mean, I really believe if you read the book, you see that his spirit is so strong and he gives signs all the time. I have dreams about him all the time. I had two recently where it was just, he just knew I needed his comfort and his hugs and just being able to have this dream visit is very different than just a dream dream. It's almost like I'm creating new memories with him in these dream visits. And I can't explain it, but other people that I know that are, that have gone through it totally get what I'm saying is that there's a difference between just having a dream and having a dream visit where it's actually them coming back to you in your dream. And I remember one visit, he came to my dream about five years old and we were watching like home videos and he just 
held my hand and he says, see, mom, he goes, even back then, he said, there was something wrong with me. And so he was always talking about his mental, he he always used to say, there's something wrong with my brain. Uh, One of our therapy sessions, the therapist said, you know, he's such an empath. And he was trying to describe to me what Jacob might be feeling. He says, imagine yourself with all of your nerve endings exposed and all you can feel is pain all the time and you can't turn it off. That's the heart of an empath. And, and Jacob did carry people's pain after he passed. I remember going through his social media, his emails, his text messages, you know, just trying to find answers. And so many, so many messages of him just encouraging people who were struggling with addiction or suicidal, or there's a girl that he would talk to often and she had cystic fibrosis and she was in and out of the hospital and he would just cheer her up and just be, you know, support to her. And so imagine being 18 and carrying that kind of weight. I mean, I'm a counselor. I, this is what I do for a living that I've done for over 20 years. And I know that how hard it is to process. So imagine being 18 and not having the tools to give that much to other people without pouring back into yourself. Hence the format of my book is the give principle, because I really believe that in order to give, you've got to give to yourself first. You have to pour into yourself first so that you're giving out of your overflow and not out of your empty cup, right? Because that's where burnout happens, that's stress, that's breakdowns, you name it, is when we just give, 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 and we have nothing else to give. And so that breath work, that little 15-minute you know, meditation mindfulness that I talk about in the book is just a little bit of you plugging into your breath, your power, your higher power, whatever that is for you so that you can have something to give to others. I love that. Yeah. Can you just for our audience define the give principle? Yes. So the give principle is what I created and it really was inspired by Jacob because like I said, he was so generous with his heart and gave without condition and without anything in return. And nobody knew about it. He wasn't doing it so that he could look good on social media or he can have popularity of, oh, look at me, look what I'm doing. I mean, he really did this behind closed doors. Nobody knew that this is what he was doing. And so I was really inspired by just trying to figure out how can we help people who are empaths or really just people in general with giving back to themselves. And so the, the word give is an acronym for G stands for grounding. I stands for intention. V stands for visualization. And E stands for expressing gratitude. And so you can just do, this is a little bit of a framework that helps you just organize your thoughts through your meditation practice. Um, because meditation can be a little bit nebulous, like, oh, it's just kind of this foo-foo thing up here. And so I really wanted to make it, and this I just was doing for myself. How can I make this really easy to follow so that it's organized and it's just kind of quick? <laughs> it's meditation for dummies or, you know, meditation for people who don't have a lot of time to meditate. So that's kind of what inspired that. And so starting with grounding, grounding is just mindfulness. Grounding is just taking yourself back to this present moment and not worrying about the past that you cannot change, not worrying about the future that you cannot control, but really being present with whatever is in front of you. And so for me, that was such a gift to be able to do that, especially when we were in the hospital with Jacob, because like I said, my default would have been to disassociate, to numb myself, to be so overwhelmed with grief that I could not even enjoy those last two weeks with him. So that grounding part was so super important to just be present. I stands for intention. And intention is really directing your thoughts to a certain word that can guide you throughout the day. So If you read my book, there's 40 chapters and every single one of those intentions were the intentions that I used during that time from the first day that we received the phone call that Jacob was on his way to the hospital all the way till, you know, after he passed through, you know, the, the days after the grieving period, you know, the, when you're in the middle of 
that such intense grief, these were the words that I had meditated on. And so you get to see it in real time. And like, you're with me, you're meditating with me of what I was going through those days. I mean, it's really like reading my journal. <laughs> it's very raw. I feel very naked and very unfiltered because it's just really what was happening in real time. And so intention could just be a word like surrender, or it could be a phrase, or it can be some kind of affirmation. And so that was really helpful because when our mind default, our natural default is usually ne negative. And so the intention is to really focus our minds onto something that's more positive. And then V, V stands for visualization. And again, that was a very powerful part of the practice because visualization helps you to imagine a better scenario than what you're currently in. And a lot of times the visualizations for us was just visualizing Jacob waking up, visualizing him waking up without any brain damage, visualizing him being his funny, quirky self and laughing and smiling and visualizing him just being able to live. And I know that people probably think, well, that didn't work out too well for you, did it? But I'll tell you what, the human spirit is so powerful that I study a lot of Holocaust survivors and books on the Holocaust. And some of the survivors that have been interviewed, when they ask them, what got you through living in those concentration camps? Every single one of them will tell you they visualize coming home to their families. They visualize their wife making breakfast. They visualize being able to hug their kids. And so even though they knew that was not the reality, that visualization kept them alive, kept their spirit alive. There's so much power in that. It's underutilized. Even though every time we were in the hospital, the doctors would give us bad news, bad news, bad news. For us, the survival skill that we had to hang on to with that visualization of that Jacob was going to be okay. And for that time, for that season, that really helped us get through that time in the hospital. And then lastly, expressing gratitude. We already know that gratitude is such an important practice. There's now science behind how gratitude rewires our brain. And, you know, there's so many great benefits to gratitude, but expressing gratitude is a whole different level of elevating the atmosphere in the room. And I remember being in the hospital. And again, my husband was such a great example of this. He knew every nurse's name, knew every specialist, the janitors, the receptionist, and he was asking people how they're doing and, you know, really serving people in the ICU. I was so blown away. I'm like, where do you even have the bandwidth to think of somebody else right now with everything that we're going through? But I'll tell you, it made such a huge impact that I remember the last day we were there, one nurse in particular, Nurse Jamie, she came up to us just in tears and she says, you know, I see you as where death happens and you guys brought life and just your spirit and your hope and just, we've never seen anything like this. And they were so impacted. And it was just because we expressed gratitude again in ICU, everything's so heightened. There's, you know, emotions, grief, and just to even be able to tell nurses and specialists and doctors, thank you, just meant so much to them. That's the give principle and a very, very powerful tool that got us through that time and that I still use to this very day. So Amazing. They can't keep up. There's so many people going in there for overdoses and it's just tragic. Very Usually tragic. I have my guests like ask my dad a question, but is there something that you would want to say to parents that are going through this? To know that. If they love their child, that is enough because a lot of times parents who are in the situation have so much guilt because they feel like if only I could have done this or I should be doing more, you know, that will take us out because that doesn't bring them back. And I believe everything happens for a reason, right? I know it's totally cliche, but I do believe that if Jacob didn't get drugs from this person, he would have gotten it from somebody else. And I'm just a firm believer that everything happened the way it was supposed to happen. As painful as that is, that's just what I believe. And I think for parents, we can get caught up in the guilt of the woulda, shoulda, coulda, and what could I have done differently? 
And that's just a lot of energy that takes us out of the picture versus, okay, now what can I do with what I have? And how can I move forward? And how can I serve other people? How can I support other people that are going through this? Because there's a lot of us. There's a whole army of families that are just floundering right now with this epidemic. And we need each other. Healing happens in safe communities with shared experiences where we can be unapologetic, without judgment, be in a safe place to just share our story, kind of like what you're doing now, right? You're providing the space for me to share my story. And there's so much healing in that. And so for parents, I think just continue to share your story. I know there's a lot of stigma and shame attached to overdose, addiction, suicide, you know, these, these things that isolate us and make us feel like, oh, I, I don't want to put myself out there. But I, that's why I feel very strongly about writing my book because I wanted to be in the front lines to say, hey, because I'm sharing my story, I hope it gives you permission to share your story. Okay. So let people know how they can join your community, buy your book, get in touch with you for the work that you're doing. So everything's just judythurston.com, J-U-D-Y-T-H-U-R-E-S-O-N.com. You can also buy a signed copy of the the book, Beautiful Tragedy, on my website, or it's also available on Amazon. It's available on Barnes & Noble. I'm also on Facebook and Instagram, Judy Thurston. I do have a private Beautiful Tragedy book page. I bring in different resources, different people to share and give tools and give coping skills to people that are in the deep places of their grief. So amazing. I need to find that too. Is there anything you want to ask my dad? No pressure. I'm always curious as other parents, what they feel like they could have done different, right? Even in our situation, because it's just interesting to me from the outside looking in, especially people that don't know us, you know, what kind of perspective he might have. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. This is Rena with Judy explaining how to try to overcome just a terrible, terrible tragedy in their lives to lose a son that's 18 years old, that's a talent. And yet, you know, you have a lot of people as she explained, that are musicians with tremendous talent and yet coping with all of the highs and lows to be on an extremely high stage. All of his friends uh, or a lot of the people that he knew had also overdosed on drugs. You know, we're talking about even Elvis Presley's and, and Michael Jackson's and the list goes on and on and on of how many people that you can rattle off your head coping with all of the extremities that these people face where the only way they relax. And isn't that what's prescribed to even normal people, supposedly? That if you're having trouble with frustrations or coping with things, just take a drug to ease your uh, mind or ease your pain. And when you then start relying on these drugs or the alcohol or whatever substance that somebody has prescribed to you, whether it's a friend or whether it's a doctor, does it really matter? But then all of a sudden, you get so dependent on these things, and you need more and more and more of it to settle you down. All of a sudden, you're in the hospital where you've overdosed, and some people walk out of it, and some people never do. And some people walk out of it just to do it over and over and over again because they don't really know how to cope. That is true. I found very interesting that you got to the crux of some of the situation is that Maybe it's even inherent a little bit that she obviously had traumas in her own personal life, whether it's rape or abuse and or even being able to be friendly. And you act out, you revolt against just about everything where you're getting into fights, where you're also develop self-confidence issues because you are in a box when you're under these type of strains. Some people that have extra anxiety and things. I don't know. Somehow it sometimes gets passed on to even the next generation or the following generation. A calming effect that she brings up is meditation and also being able to speak out and and let, let your feelings be known. But it has to be done with people that you can really trust. You know, she mentions even that 
her family was in, in politics. And if you don't shine and show the right light always in front of people, it can be used against you or your family can be destroyed when you're in the public eye for not crossing one T or dotting one I. It's really like living under a, a microscope. I don't think people really understand how fragile life can be. And we sometimes when we're young, we can be also very foolhardy where we want to experiment and learn as we're going along. And we can do very dangerous things, even driving cars too fast. Drinking and driving has killed plenty of people that I know. There's a lot of adversities that we have to overcome as it is. And yet sometimes relaxing and trying to just have a good time can also be very dangerous. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com.